So it turns out if we spend a little more time listening and connecting with our kids, it actually makes them feel more cooperative and it makes everything that flows from that easier. Performing in Frozen was quite an experience. I mean, just performing for kids, what you learn quickly is that they are honest. Honest in ways that you <laughs> have never imagined. Hello, hello, and welcome back once again to Stroller Coaster, the podcast that takes you on the wild ride of parenting created by Munchkin. We love hearing from you all, so please leave a review and share with your friends. It helps so much. Today, we're going to talk about a skill that seems very easy. You're doing it right now, but it's actually quite complicated. Listening. You know, if, if you look at the pants that I have, and you see the ones with the sort of worn out knees, you can tell which ones I was wearing when my kids were really little, because I, I just tried always to kneel down when I was listening to them. I wanted to be like eye to eye level to just physically demonstrate, you know, how willing I was to be connected. And now that my kids are a little bit older, I don't need to kneel anymore. And, and I feel like the listening, the listening as hard as you can never ends and it, and it sort of goes to different places. So, so recently my daughter was, was doing school at home and she, I could tell she was very frustrated by a math situation. And she left the iPad, she left her class and I said, you know, honey, do, do you want to talk about it? What's going on? And she didn't want to talk about it, but she did. Does this ever happen, Justin? Like, you know, like your kids linger and tell you they don't want to talk about something, but you know they need to, right? Yeah, I mean, that lingering rarely happens in my household unless there's something boiling underneath the surface. Uh, right, right. So, so I knew that she needed me to listen. And I said, well, honey, when you want to tell me what's going on, I'm here. And I see her little spirit. She has like a stuffed spirit dog, like those Mexican alabrije. Oh, yeah, yeah. Know? If anyone's ever seen the movie Coco, Oh, I know right? Coco. I'll cry at Coco okay. right now if you want me to. <laughs> so, so, it's, so she has Corby the spirit dog. And I was like, all right, here we go. I'm in. I'm going to need to talk to this dog. Like, I'm going to only get the story from the dog. <laughs> so I was like, um, uh, Minerva, that's my daughter's name. I said, mm -hmm. Minerva, can I please talk to Corby the spirit dog? And, you know, she reluctantly brings Corby in. But Corby wanted to talk to me. And, and Corby and I ended up having a conversation. And it was a lot of whispering, a lot of checking in with Minerva. Mm. And, you know, finally, through Corby the spirit dog, I learned what was going on with the math situation. And it took a really long time. And I was like, this, oh, man. And I had to work, Justin. Of course I had to work, right? Yeah, you had to listen to both um, your daughter and a stuffed animal that probably was way off message. Uh, what was happening. <laughs> right. And oh, the whole time I'm like, I can't look at my email because because there's probably nothing in the world more important right now than listening to to the spirit dog yeah. and to my daughter. Uh, and and I just thought there's probably nothing more important or a better investment of my time than <laughs> listening to my daughter through this stuffed animal. Uh, today we have an excellent and very important show about listening. We'll talk with Joanna Faber and Julie King, the authors of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, a survival guide to life with children ages two to seven. And then we'll talk to Emmy-winning writer and Broadway performer Kevin DeLagula. Stay right here and listen up. 
Joanna Faber and Julie King are parenting experts, workshop leaders, childhood friends, and authors of the book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, a survival guide to life with children ages two to seven. Oh, my son just turned nine. So I don't know if I just aged out of this. I feel like, I feel like everything you have to say applies to everybody. Um, I know you have a lot to say and I, am ready to listen, which is which is more than half of the bargain and good communication, right? That's what yeah. they say. Can you please sort of give us the overview, the theory behind um, when it comes to parenting, why is listening and communication so important? I think, um, you know, as you know, when we're parents of uh, young kids, especially, we tend to get caught up in the details of managing our kids, you know, moment by moment, because there's so many things we have to get them to do and so many things we have to get them to stop doing. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it helps sometimes to remind ourselves to step back from our managerial roles and reconnect with our kids as human beings. Because, you know, ask yourself, you know, how would you react if every time you saw me coming, you knew I was going to try to make you do something you didn't want to do? You'd flee at the sound of my voice. So it turns out if we spend a little more time listening and connecting with our kids, it actually makes them feel more cooperative and it makes everything that flows from that easier. It's almost like an investment that pays off. And, and when we're, as parents, like you said, Joanna, we're, we're just trying to get to the next thing, especially with little kids. There's so much you have to do for them and there's so much you don't want them to do. And you're sort of like, okay, let's do this. Let's move this along. I don't have time to stop and have this conversation with you. And yet, if you don't make the time to stop and have that conversation, you're gonna pay for it later, right? There's gonna be meltdowns. There's gonna be resistance. Yeah, it turns out sometimes sometimes the longer way is actually the shorter way you know we want to jump right to it and say you know get your coat on now hurry up you know by wrapping out orders we encounter resistance you know nobody likes to be ordered around and nobody likes to be pushed around and and so if we can find some other ways to communicate it makes everything it makes everything easier and everything smoother so you know we think we don't have the time but you know, well, like, as you say, you said it well, a little, a little investment up front, you know, helps us save time in the end and more importantly, feel better about each other. It makes a better, it makes a better atmosphere. Right. Because the, the way you guide parents to communicate, it really involves respect for children who are human beings who deserve to be heard and respected. So can you kind of walk us through some of your guidance for how to communicate? with kids, with little kids. When people hear the title of our book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, they often say to me, oh my gosh, I really need that. I need my kids to listen. And what they mean is, I need my kids to behave, right? Obey, at least some of the time. So the first big idea I like to talk to parents about is that there's a connection between how kids feel and how they behave. In fact, mm -hmm. we can make that statement more generally. There's a connection between how people feel and how people behave, Yeah. right? So if you think about those moments in your own parenting career, when you're glad that you weren't on reality TV, you know, the kind of moments I'm talking about, maybe you raised your voice or said something cutting, think about when those times tend to be, right? They tend to be times when we ourselves are not feeling our best. Maybe we had an argument with our spouse or 
had a, a hard time at work, or we're just sick and tired of having kids hanging on us and whining all day long. So there's a connection between how we parents feel and how we behave. And it's true for kids too. There's a connection between how they feel and how they behave. So if we want to make it more likely that they'll behave right, we need to pay, pay attention to how they feel and help them feel right. So that rate brings us to the next question, which is, okay, so how do we help them feel good? And one thing we can do is to acknowledge their feelings, which sounds very simple when I say it that way, but it can be kind of complicated or hard to do in the moment. You know, it, it strikes me that it's not even necessarily about making sure kids feel good. It's that we give them permission to feel what they feel. Yes. I think you hit, you hit right to the core of it because we don't usually have problems acknowledging positive feelings. It's the negative feelings that we want to brush away, that we want to be dismissive of. And sometimes it helps people to think about how you would talk to an adult, you know, um, like if an adult friend is upset about something, um, you know, we usually know not to be dismissive. You know, we don't just say to them, you know, look, life isn't fair. There's no use whining about it. Um, or we don't jump right in with advice or, or we don't, or we, or we don't tell them like, oh, you lost your job. It'll be okay. There'll be another one. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you know, Julie, I think one thing parents fear is that if they empathize with their children's sad, angry, frustrated, negative, uh, irrational emotions, then in some way they're supporting them or amplifying them, and that never happens. They're, they're, they're just holding the kid's hand through the emotions, right? Yeah, yeah. We're afraid that it's going to make the, the feeling grow bigger. And there was just a study that was done recently that looked at brain function and discovered that if we put into words how a child is feeling or how a person is feeling, it actually calms down the amygdala. It actually calms down the brain. Yeah, that's so frustrating. Oh, that's disappointing. You were looking forward to that. Yeah, that doesn't seem fair. Yeah. You didn't want that to happen. Um, And that's what helps them let go. That's what helps them move on. It's when we go in the opposite direction and we say, just let it go. Oh my gosh. They tend to cling more tightly because it's frustrating not to have someone understand your reality and it makes you protest even more vehemently. No, you don't understand. It is a tragedy. Right. Or it makes you feel dismissed. And and really, we never want to be dismissive of our kids, even if we're wildly impatient. Right. <laughs> so when it comes to creating a, a cooperative environment in the home or, you know, in the in the grocery store aisle, how do we get our kids on the same page as us? Because I think everyone listening is like, I get it. I love my kids. I want to support them in their feelings. But we also need efficiency. So what's the game plan? Okay, so it seems like the most efficient way to get a kid to do something would be to tell a kid directly to do it. You know, you know, pick that up, put that down, hurry up. But again, we have to think about how do we feel when someone says to us, you know, you know, look at that mess you made. You need to pick it up every single piece and, you know, get your coat on, hurry up. Or if you keep playing with your broccoli, you're not going to get dessert. Uh, You know, kids have the same angry and defiant feelings that we get when people accuse us or threaten us or order us around. So the first thing we want to do is we want to try some skills 
that will make a kid feel cooperative because then we're not in a battle from the get-go. All right, so let's take a scenario. I think everyone relates to this. We got to get out the door. We got, we've got to go. You're going to be late for school. So one of the simplest things you can do when you feel a command about to rise to your lips is to convert that command into a choice because nobody likes being told what to do. What choice can this kid have? You know, do you, do you want to get your pajamas on the regular way? Or do you want to try to do it with your eyes closed? Or do you want to put them on the regular way? Or do you want to put them on inside out? And, you know, now your kid is thinking, hmm, how do I want to do it? Oh, I want to do it inside out. It changes the whole dynamic. Well, that sort of leads me to the next one, which is we say, put the child in charge. Everyone has a drive for autonomy. And parents often say to us, oh, my kid just wants to be in control. He wants to be in control. And we say, okay, let's give them some control then. Mm -hmm. So a kid who say, you know, melts down about having to leave at a certain time, you can give that kid the timer to hold and put that kid in charge of the time and say, you know, honey, will you tell us, you know, tell us when the timer rings, when five minutes is up and it's time to get our coats on. And then, you know, you'll find your kid coming after you like, mom, it's time. Um, I love that example. And I would imagine when you achieve that, it really helps to give approbation, right? Like positive feedback. Well, some types of praise are more effective than others. Yes. Yes. We like praise, praise effort and not achievement, right? That's right. That's right. So, um, yeah, we make a distinction between what we call evaluative praise and descriptive praise. Tell me more. So evaluative praise sounds like, you know, good job or great work or such a good boy. You're so smart. That was excellent. Beautiful. Perfect. The best. Well, think about how you would feel if I said to you, Faith, this is the best interview I've ever had. You are an excellent host. Every question you ask is perfect. I'd be like, she's, she's buttering me up. What, what's, what's this about? <laughs> yeah, like, uh, and it also might make you start to think about, like, I don't think it was perfect. I think the intro, I forgot to mention something, right? Yeah. So in other words, when we give people global or valued of praise, it can cause them to doubt you. It can mm -hmm. cause them to wonder if we're trying to manipulate them, or it can cause them to focus on their flaws. And it, you might even start to think, I don't know if I want to interview this person again. Like, that's too much pressure the next time. Right, right. If she thought this was perfect, I don't want to mess up next time. So yeah. 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 So descriptive phrase is what we're after, which is like you, let me guess, right? Is it like you worked so hard when you were cleaning up those Legos? I saw you get every single one. You're better than a vacuum cleaner, right? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I guess then that'll make them feel competitive with the vacuum cleaner. So I'll back away from that one. <laughs> sure. You can compete with the vacuum cleaner as long as you're not competing with your, with your sibling, uh, yeah. because that, that leads to no good end. But, uh, I'm sure you've heard of, of this person named Carol Dweck, who's a researcher at Stanford, and, and she really went deep in investigating this phenomenon. She wrote a book called Mindset, and one of the most relevant studies that she cites that they did had to do with, they gave two sets of kids, two different groups of kids, um, a math sheet to complete. And 
the first group, when they finished the math sheet, they told them, you are so talented at math. You know, you, you are very, very bright. And then the second group, they described, as you said, they, they said, boy, these were really tricky questions and you stuck with them. You put a lot of effort into this and you, you figured out the answers. And then they came to the first group and they said, you know, would you like to try another math sheet, even more difficult? And they said the same thing to the second group. Now, how would you imagine that the first group would respond? Oh, yeah. The first group who were told that they totally crushed it and had talent wouldn't want to, like, risk, you know, getting a, a lower grade in, in the researcher's estimation, right? But the other group is going to be like, yeah, they think I work hard. I can work even harder. You are absolutely right. You yeah. can give yourself some praise. Um, I worked really hard to answer that question, Joanna. <laughs> I listened hard. But that idea is growth mindset, right? That's what Dweck calls growth mindset. Because she describes the process as opposed to an innate quality. Um, but what we're really focusing here on, on for our purposes is that evaluative praise can actually do the opposite of what we intend, which is it can uh -huh. completely shut kids down and make them stop cry trying. Can I tell you a secret? I think grandparents are the worst at evaluative praise. They are the worst. When, when uh, an unnamed grandparent of my children is like, you're so smart. I'm like, ixnay on the arts may, right? That's not what we're here for. We're here to say, I really love how you read that with such emphasis and you did the different voices, right? So we, we reached out to, to our stroller coaster community and, and here's a situation, a specific situation someone's dealing with in their family. Uh, this person says, my five-year-old is mega shy. So I don't know, I already see a, a, a red alert for labeling a kid. Is there anything I can do to help her feel comfortable in a social setting? Well, one thing you can do with kids who are shy is to give them a job to do instead of pressuring them to be social. A direct greeting to people who they're not familiar with, especially, can be really hard for kids. So, you know, let's say you're going to a family gathering. You don't want to start by asking your five-year-old to, you know, go say hi, give a hug to Aunt Sophie. Oh, no, 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 go give a hug. Mm -mm. No, no. Um, and, and don't say, go, why don't you go play with your cousins? Come on, don't be shy. You remember them from last summer. You know, instead, you can ask her to help you put the chips you brought in a bowl for people to snack on, find a place for it on the counter, or you know, have them hang up coats on the pegs, or, or they can help the little kids get their shoes on. So, like Having a job or some physical way to interact can really help a kid warm up and feel comfortable in a social situation. And I'm going to add something to that because you mentioned labeling. Um, I think we we tend to label our kids with the best of possible intentions. You know, sometimes uh. like when Aunt Sophie's saying, come on, come on, give me a hug. And the cousins are saying, come play with us. You know, we want to protect our kid. So in front of that very kid, we may say, you know, oh, Julie's very shy. It takes her a long time to warm up. But then that makes it even harder for the kid to come out because you know maybe maybe she was feeling a little tendril of bravery and then then her mother said like oh you're shy you're going to take a long time to warm up um, and it, it's hard to get past that so what we recommend to parents to say is that will protect their child and still show confidence in that child is 
oh, don't worry, Julie will join you to play when she's ready. Yeah. And those three little words, when she's ready, tells Julie that I'm not pushing you. You're in charge of yourself, but I also have confidence in you. I think that's really important what you're saying because you're not telling parents that communication involves solving their kids' problems. You just have to accept how they feel. I have to tell this story here. I don't know. You can put it in. You can cut it out. Please. Um, uh, it, it demonstrates to me how difficult this is to, to do even when you know that it's the right thing and even when you're with another adult. Um, there was an occasion when a friend of mine called me up and I was going to bring her into the hospital to have some tests done. And she said to me, you know what I'm really worried about? I'm worried that it's going to be the big C. And my immediate feeling, my immediate urge was to say, don't even think it. It's not that. Don't even think it. But I really literally bit my tongue not to say Uh that. And I was just silent for a few seconds. And then I said something like, oh, that's such a big worry to have on you that to be carrying around. And she sort of made this explosive sound like, yes, it Uh is. And, And do you know what people say to me? And I said, what? And she said, they tell me not to even think about it. Isn't that ridiculous? How could you not think about it? And I never admitted to her, and hopefully she's not watching, listening to this podcast, that that was exactly what I wanted to say to her. Okay, well, here, I'm going to take something I've learned. When each of you is ready, would you please um, share one final piece of advice that, that you can leave us with? Sure, I'll start. And I'll start with that thing I just said, and I'm going to say it again. You can't always do it. No one could do this stuff all the time. Don't beat yourself up. You know, we give our kids a thousand chances and then one more. Give yourself a thousand chances and then two more. You know, we aim for 70%. Some days, 50% is all we can manage. And sometimes even 10% can make a real difference in a relationship. That's actually an act of generosity for you to remind us of that, right? Parents pa- parents are imperfect all the time, and our kids love us anyway. Weird. They don't want the robot parent. They want the imperfect human parent. Yeah, instead of advice, I'm going to leave you with a challenge. Uh, we talked a lot about how kids don't want to be told what to do and the alternatives that parents can use. So my challenge to your listeners is to see how long you can go without giving your kid an order. Is it 10 seconds? Is it, <laughs> is it 10 minutes? And then write to us and tell us, how long did you go and what did you say? So that's my challenge. Um, that's a wonderful challenge. I, I thank you both so much. What you've, what you've shared is just invaluable. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You did a great job. You're the best guest we've ever had. And we're (laughs) never coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's the perfect ending. Justin, you know what I love about our new friends, Joanna and Julie? Yes. Uh, um, You're listening, I can hear you. Um, They're super realistic. 
right? They, they come from a place of, of a very philosophical way to connect with kids, and yet they are like, this. we know how hard life can be, this is how it works, and here are some, here are some tricks. And just like, I think you're, that's spot on, because I feel like you talk to a lot of experts, especially about parenting, and they're very much removed. They're very like, well, if you observe the child, they can, and it's like this whole very formal thing. <laughs> They, I feel like they could be sitting with a kid and just hyper working it out, identifying with the kid and really communicating with them. Like they put their expertise into practice in a way that I want them to be my parent or at least some sort of aunt. Yeah, or a therapist. One of my absolute favorite things to do is to sit and listen to a Broadway show. There is nothing like it, as my next guest certainly knows. His name is Kevin DeLagula, and he's an Emmy Award-winning writer, Broadway performer, acclaimed director, and playwright in New York. He's a busy, talented man. Hello, Kevin. I'm very excited to talk to you. Everything you do is totally my jam. I am jazz hands theater mom. Um, and, and you are a writer, director, and performer for kids. So let's start with this. What do you notice about how kids listen at the theater? It is an interesting thing. I mean, you know, kids definitely listen. There is a, a small window of time when they will have, they will give you their full attention. They will be listening intently to every single thing that, that's going on. They will be looking, they will be waiting for the information that they're looking for to hit them. And if it does, if you catch them, then you've got them for a while. And, um, and you will know it because they will be still. If you miss that window of opportunity, you will lose them forever. And it's very difficult to get them back. This is how we used to try out some of the, um, the shows for kids that I would write. We would, we would you know, get a, a, a giant uh, group of children and we'd present the show. And as soon as they started squirming, rewrites. We got a rewrite. <laughs> We got to cut this. We got to rethink this. We've got to do something because we want them to listen. We want them to pay attention and we want to speak to them. We want them to invest in what we're doing. And if they're not invested in what we're doing, we're not speaking their language, then no, it, it's not good for anyone. In, in the true spirit of improv, I will say to you, yes, and, very and by the way, my very children have seen you on Broadway and Frozen. So Isn't thank you. Right? So thank you for that. Oh, of um, course. My pleasure. Yeah. So, so thank you for the joy you brought my family personally. Um, and I imagine as you bring uh, thousands uh, of children joy, you have some hilarious experiences. What, what is it like performing in front of thousands of children? I mean, yeah, performing in Frozen was, was, was quite an experience. I mean, first of all, just performing for kids, what you learn quickly is that there is no critic uh, like a giant room full of squirming kids. That must be true. They are honest. Honest in ways that you have never imagined. Give so me an example. Well, I mean, you know, the bad example is they just start talking and moving and getting up and walking around and you know you've lost them. Um, the good example is they you get that laugh as soon as you get your first laugh from a kid in an audience it spreads like wildfire and they are with you they're, yeah. they're gonna gonna follow you they're gonna let you know vocally that they are with you they may talk back to you they may you know warn you about a danger you know in, in the i mean it it all depends on the age of the uh, of the child but for the most part they are very much like an adult audience but they are um more vocal 
in, in some ways, does it feel like more of a responsibility to perform in front of children than adults? Because you, you have to think, every performance you do might be some kid's first experience with live theater. Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, the the, the funny thing is that they... Um, uh, you do you do feel a, a responsibility that you want it to be a good first experience. You want you want to create a little theater goer, and and um, uh, you you don't want to um, uh, to bore them at all. But for the most part, as I said, they're willing to ride the ride. And and uh, sometimes you know um, because it's live, because it's happening in front of their eyes, um, it it can be even with Frozen, it can be a, a little you know. Um, um, People take it different ways. You know, when Elsa's is throwing, you know, icicles all over the place and making, you know, freezing, <laughs> you know, the the world, some kids were like, let's get out of here. She's She doesn't know what she's doing with that magic. She's going to freeze us. And so they go running into the lobby. And other kids are like at the edge of their seats going, yes, Elsa, yes. That's why we came here to watch. Do it, girl. Happen. The cold doesn't bother you anyway. <laughs> exactly. And uh, it's just really interesting to see how um, – Different kids respond differently to things. I mean, like, like people, I guess. But, um, um, but they're they're willing to suspend disbelief instantly. So they are they are um, they're there watching, ready to go on the ride. In in your experience doing live theater, both as a performer and and a and a creator, um, mm-hmm. and also writing for for television, um, how? How do you handle offering kids, you know, scary, cliffhangery experiences? I wrote for this this um, uh, this uh, children's television show, and um, it was a race, and the bad guy was was running up this hill. He was in the lead, and the good guy was trying to catch up with him at the bottom of the hill. And the bad guy gets to the top and says, "Ha ha! I'll stop that good guy. I'll roll this boulder down after him. Ha ha ha!" And the network was like, you, no, no, no boulders. You can't have boulders. And I'm like, well, he's not going to get hit with the boulder. You know, it's just it's going to go by him. And, 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 and they said, no, no, no boulders, no boulders. But what if it was a giant ball of cheese? And I was like, a giant ball of cheese? Where is he, where is he going to find a giant ball of cheese? They said, yeah, 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 giant ball of cheese and make it Swiss. That way we can see the holes and it'll feel less it's, dangerous. Yes, less intimidating. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, at the and end we of all the day, know the Swiss are neutral. So, yeah, of course. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you, you, have, you have a giant ball of cheese rolling down a mountain at, at somebody, and and out of the blue, and it, 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 the point is that that they just go to such lengths that it becomes absurd at a certain point. It it, it gets just strange trying to to twist yourself into pretzels to to take the edge off of of. Uh, <laughs> the story. I feel the like we have. I feel like we have the name of of your memoir, Giant Ball of Cheese. <laughs> Giant Ball of Cheese it's and other stories. <laughs> Kevin, can, can you tell me about a, a surprising moment you might have encountered in the middle of a performance? Uh, well, of course, for it during Frozen, um, you know, since it was so many kids first experience there were a lot of families coming there were a lot of kids in the audience um and my character i played oaken the little hoo-hoo big summer blowout guy um and i began act two and i talked directly to the audience so i got to like engage with them um face to face and uh uh in the front row one night was a newborn child breastfeeding 
oh. on his mother. Sure. Um, like you do in the Broadway <laughs> the Broadway theater. And I thought, you know, this wouldn't happen at Angels in America. This is <laughs> unique to Frozen. Um, but it provided a great laugh because, like, the audience cheers at one point and I, I got to scream, Quiet! There's a baby asleep in the front row! So, Did you really? Of course. It was, oh, that's uh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know what? Kudos to that mom. I like it. She wasn't going to miss Frozen. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> Get them while they're young. That's the um, I'm glad you haven't minded that I've been breastfeeding a, a newborn this entire interview. No, no, I wasn't. You, you haven't noticed, have you? Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't want to distract. <laughs> um, uh, b- before we go, uh, I noticed your, your dad's from Peru, right? Yes, correct. And your mom's from Liverpool? Yes. I'm, can I'm, you? I'm yeah, all mixed up. <laughs> you are. Um, can you just say goodbye to us with a really nice, uh, what is it? Liverpudlian accent? So long. Got to go. Take care. <laughs> bye bye. I don't know. I don't know. Bye bye. Good. <laughs> <laughs> love, love, love me too. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's time once again to hear the confessions that real parents out there gave us on one of our many trips to the playground. Take it away. My three-year-old daughter loves to pretend to be different animals, so I use that to my advantage. Uh, If she's a bunny, I tell her they love to eat carrots. If she's a cat, I tell her to drink more milk. Whenever my kids are acting real crazy, jumping off the rafters, off the couches, sometimes I have to kneel down on their level and say, I'm going to tell Santa. They immediately do whatever I need them to do. So on New Year's Eve, in order to get our young kiddos to bed early, uh, we tell them it's actually called Noon Year's Eve, where everyone celebrates in the afternoon and then goes to bed early. And we do it so my husband and I can stay up late for some alone time, Um, but we usually just end up asleep on the couch. Got your own parenting confession? Send it to us at podcast at munchkin.com. We would love to hear from you. This week's giveaway is music to your ears. Literally, we're giving away 10 Munchkin Mozart Magic Cubes, which feature eight Mozart masterpieces that inspire creativity and interactive play for toddlers. To win, be one of the first 10 people to email the words Mozart Magic to podcast at munchkin.com. That's the show. Thanks for taking the ride with us. And thanks to our guests, Joanna Faber, Julie King, and Kevin Delagula. If you want more information about any of our guests, check out strollercoaster.com. Thank you to Munchkin for helping us put this together. No wonder they're the most loved baby brand in the world. You can buy all of your Munchkin products at Bye Bye Baby. At Stroller Coaster, we're all about community. So if you have a parenting confession story you'd like to share, a question, a topic you want to hear more about, don't hesitate to reach out to us at podcast at munchkin.com. And please do us a favor and spread the word. The more people who listen, the more people who love it, the more Stroller Coaster we get to do. Oh, just a reminder to check out the other podcast in this feed. It's called Stroller Coaster Storytime. It's our storytelling podcast for parents and children to enjoy together. It's a short, fun, and creative take on two 
children's stories performed by improv actors and directed by a nine-year-old kid. I think the fun comes from the fact that the grown-up improv actors have to listen to a nine-year-old kid. Uh, it's about time. And now, something every parent can use, a timeout for you. Munchkin cares so much about our planet. Today, we'll enjoy the hypnotic sound of a hummingbird's wings. See you next week on Stroller Coaster.